0: Let's pray. Father and our God, Lord, we come before you humbly, praising the mighty work of your hands, and Lord blessed by your word. We just pray that as we open your word this morning, as our pastor preaches and teaches your truth, Lord that it will indeed transform our minds. Lord, that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive it. We pray that you would give him words to speak boldly, words of truth, words we need to hear and be reminded of. We thank you again for the wonderful blessing of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is... A great blessing to be back uh, with you. Uh, having been gone for the last uh, two weeks, uh, we traveled up to see or to, to attend the General Assembly of our Confessional Baptist Association. That's our National Association of Reformed Baptist Churches. Uh, so it was a great time of, of fellowship, of, of the business of our association. Uh, we've got some things that I'm very excited about going on within our association with respect to. Our primary purpose, our primary focus right now is is planting of churches and we 've made some substantial headway in those areas. Um, I hope to give a report soon about what what's going on there so I've, I've, I feel probably like you do a little bit uh, we've had with two really competent guest pastors the last two weeks with uh, Brother David and Julius, grateful for their their labors. but we kind of had to break the pattern and break into the series, and, and now we're coming back and have to do the task of, okay, where were we? And so, where were we? We were in the midst of, of, a, of an overview of, I was around the dinner table last night, I said, you know, this brief series, and I thought to myself, and I said out loud, can I call it brief anymore? Uh, it, it's, it's grown, but I think that's been, it's been helpful to me. I hope it's been edifying to you um, last week, or our last sermon, three weeks ago, we looked at the duties of members one to another. And in this study, we've looked at the duties and qualifications of deacons and of elders, pastors, bishops, overseers, those words are interchangeable, and also the duties and qualifications of church members. So last time, we looked at the duties of members one to another. We come today to the duties of members to their pastors, And I will confess to you something. As I've studied this material going back several months and outlined where I was going to be going, and and I came to this and said, well, somebody needs to preach this. Um, I'd rather not be me, but I'd rather somebody, somebody needs to preach this. But the task does fall uh, to me. And and it really got me thinking, why is it that I'm reluctant or not? Well, yeah, that's the right word, have been reluctant uh, to proclaim what? The Word of God clearly says on this subject matter, there are duties. And just as, and it's not the same thing, but the the duty is parallel as parents. You have responsibilities to train your children in all of their duties of life, but also their duties with respect to their submission to you and their relationship to one another and to their parents. I've been helped a lot. There's a little book, we have it in in our, our library. It's a small little book by John Owen called The Duties of Christian Fellowship. And in the book, the first, roughly third or so, uh, the book outlines this, this heading, the duties of members to their ministers. Uh, Owen highlights seven distinct duties. Uh, you'll probably be relieved I'm not going to go through all seven in the sermon today. I've, I've combined and, and coalesced some of those things together. I'll give you three general headings. But I think the sermon itself is important because the Bible does give us very clear instruction on this matter. And it is, admittedly, it's probably impossible for either me or you uh, to think of these things detached from the, the reality of personal relationships. This is still David standing before you. But I also stand before you not just as David, but in the office of pastor and I have the duty to declare to you, thus saith the Lord, right? And, and you have a duty to hear that, not as the words of men, but as the words of Christ. So if we confess, and I'm challenging my own thinking sometimes, if, if I believe, as I've taught you often, that the preaching of the word of Christ is the word of Christ, then why would I shrink back from declaring what my master has said? I, I serve in the role of an ambassador. Some not my words. I simply say, well, this is what he said and declare that to you. My own awkwardness on the subject then has to be due to my own pride. My own unbelief that remains. And so as we look ahead in faith, hopefully I will not be the only pastor here from now on. And and you need to know the duties to other pastors who will come in. But also the reality is I will not be here forever. Our General Assembly was hosted at Oak Grove Baptist Church in Anger, North Carolina. The church was constituted in 1913. The building was established before there was indoor plumbing or electricity. Next to the church is a graveyard. And you can go in and you can see names on headstones that match the plaques on the pews and match the, the description on stained glass in the windows. The church has been there for over 100 years The people who planted and established that church and the pastors who initially labored in that field are in the dirt now. Their bodies are in the dirt. And and so we have to think in that way. We need to be thinking in terms of who's coming next after us? Pastorally, who's coming next as members? And so I don't want to assume, even if you know these things, that your children know them and your children's children will know them. I want to direct your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and, and again, because this is a, a topical series, I'm not going to do a, 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 my typical mode of, of, of a full exposition and exegesis of the text. I'm going to approach it thematically. There are some things that Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 6 that are helpful for us to frame our understanding of these matters. Here, this is the Word of God. Actually, you know what? I'm going to back up to the v- verse 20, the last two verses of chapter 5. So then, we are ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. "...and working together with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as ministers of God." "...in much perseverance, in afflictions, in distresses, in hardships, in beatings, in imprisonments, in disturbances, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in unhypocritical love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not put to death, as sorrowful but always rejoicing, as poor but making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. And here's the emphasis for today. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Paul is saying here, in in the midst of enduring the hardship of ministry, in the the midst of of working with a church, that, frankly, there were some challenges and difficulties in Paul's relationship. As you read through First Corinthians and especially 2 Corinthians, you can see there are challenges and difficulties between Paul as the apostle who established and planted the church and some of the members of the church and the way that they were thinking. And yet Paul is able with a clear conscience to say, I've been an open book to you. Not only in what I have taught you and the way that I have spoken to you, but my life has been laid bare before you. And, and what he said, what I'm saying in, in return is, I ask that from you. I ask for that kind of transparency and that openness from you. And, and that's really the foundation of, of much of what he's going to communicate throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. And as you read through the rest of it, uh, you'll see how that kind of works its way out in, in various ways. In March of 2022, uh, BARNA, which is a research organization, it's a, it's a polling organization, did a study, commenced a study. This was just over a year ago. And according to this study, almost 40% of pastors that they surveyed, 40% indicated they have given serious thought to leaving the ministry in the last year. It's almost two out of five pastors in the United States have given very serious thought during the last year of leaving the ministry entirely. Now, the trend has sharpened, but it's not new. Uh, They had another comprehensive study in in 2017 that showed this kind of phenomenon, but as you might imagine, it spiked significantly during the COVID mess. Uh, The strain on churches and pastors was immense. Uh, I praise God that we were able to escape much of that. But of those 38% that said they had given serious thought, Barna went on to ask them why. What, what are the factors there? I'm, gonna just kinda, I'm not going to read the whole list of things, but I'm going to give you just a, a sampler here of some of the more prominent things. 56% said the immense stress of the job. 43% said they felt lonely and isolated in ministry. 29%, uh, well, three different categories at 29%. One, said, or one category says, I'm unhappy with the effect the role has had on my family. said I'm not optimistic about the future of my church. 29% said conflict regarding the church's direction was distracting them in ministry. 24% says my church is steadily declining. 21% said I don't feel respected by the congregants. And 12% said I don't have what I need to be successful in my job. Now, I don't put a whole lot of stock in these these polls, and, and the polls themselves reveal some of that. But there is a limited usefulness. There's some insight, nonetheless. Uh, The reasons that are given here are are widely varied. Some of them are actually good reasons to leave the ministry. There were were men who were unqualified and should not have been in the ministry to begin with. Some of those have now seen that and have left. There are uncalled men. Now, of that 38%, they found that the percentage of women pastors was much higher who thought about leaving. Well, the percent ought to be 100% of them who leave. It ought to be. I mean, they all, and, and not just leave, but repent in sackcloth and ashes for forsaking and for abusing God's word. But sometimes the man himself is the reason for leaving. His own failures, uh, his own uh, lack of, of skills and abilities. But there are other times it's the congregation and its members that have fallen short in their duties. And the scriptures come to bear on just that situation. Sometimes, and, and perhaps you've seen this, I've seen this in churches before, not in this one in any time, not in any recent history, but sometimes it's personal malice. Sometimes they're, they're the congregation or certain people within the congregation who just don't like the pastor and, and therefore refuse to support the work in the way it ought to be supported. Sometimes it's due to just ignorance. People don't know. People don't understand what the, what the duties are of members of a church to their pastors. Sometimes it's apathy. It's just indifference. It's just good old-fashioned laziness and neglect of Christian duties, which we could find other examples. Uh, well beyond the sphere of duties to one another, we could find other Christian duties that are being neglected. And sometimes we look at, at an individual as, as, as immature or who is in sin and, and neglecting their duties. There are other times, I think, that we can all fall into the trap of thinking, well, what I have to offer is so small that it's just not worth giving. And, and I'm not talking about only material things. In general, we can, we can despise those small contributions and think, well, it's just not worth it. Um, who am I to, to help so I don't do anything? And so these are the, there's a constellation of things that, that, can, that can shape and affect this. But what I want to put before you today, I mentioned John Owen had seven duties. I'm going to try to coalesce these things and combine them into three. And and it's a three-word outline. For those of you who are note-takers, it's real simple. Pray, follow, and support. Pray, follow, and support. Pray for power, for perseverance, for fruitfulness in the work of the ministry. Secondly, to the degree that a pastor's life and teaching is worthy of imitation, Make it your aim to follow his example. And thirdly, support the work of the ministry in tangible and intangible ways. So pray, follow, and support. Let's, let's think of these duties in order. And the first one is to pray. As, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 6, he said, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. And included in that is his statement about his need for their prayers. See, Paul is not prideful when he says, I need you to pray for me. He's actually showing a great deal of humility to say, I can't do this. The the power necessary to accomplish this task doesn't reside in any man. It doesn't reside in, in the most skilled and eminent of men, as Paul surely was. And I think we can find just three basic reasons that church members are commanded to pray for their pastors. First is that all believers are commanded to pray for one another. I'm not even going to try to prove that one to you. I think we can all just stipulate that point, right? Every believer is commanded to pray for their fellow church members, and your pastor is a fellow church member. Therefore, you're required to pray for him, generally. But then specifically, there are specific apostolic examples and commands in the Scriptures to pray for the work of the ministry. And thirdly, the scope and the nature of the work necessitates prayer. So let's think about some of the specific apostolic commands and the examples with respect to prayer. In Acts chapter 12, we have an example. We find Peter in prison. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See, the church understood this is a duty. Our pastor has been persecuted for the sake of the gospel. It is our duty to unite ourselves together in fervent, persistent prayer so that the Lord will in, in, enable him to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also have specific commands. For example, and I'm not going to give you all of them. I'm going to give you just a couple samples. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Paul's not making a request. You know, We do that with each other sometimes, don't we? Will you please pray for me? That's a sincere request. Paul has apostolic authority. He's saying this is not a a question. It's not a request. Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Do you remember? Read through the book of Acts. Go back home and read through that section. What happened in Thessalonica? Do you remember? Because the next paragraph, Luke says, well, those in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. There was a riot. But Paul said, pray that the word of God would speed ahead just like he did with you some of you were crazy enough to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and God saved you. Pray that would happen in other places, even where the ministry is received with hostility. Pray that it would be fruitful. Paul goes on, and pray that the the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. Pray for faithfulness, for fruitfulness, and for protection. Paul says to the to the Colossian church in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. Paul's saying, as you are praying as a church, which is what you ought to do. Jesus says, my house is a house of prayer. So as you are praying, pray also for us. Pray specifically that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Pray for clarity. Pray for authority. And again, Paul is demonstrating his humility here, knowing he is utterly dependent upon the power of God in his ministry. If we recognize that spiritual power comes from God, and the mystery of his providence, prayer is an appointed means of unleashing that power. Don't ask me to explain that to you. I can just tell you that it's true. In in the mystery of God's providence, God has decreed before the ages began all things that would come to pass, from the least to the greatest, and he governs all those things to the most minute detail. And yet, in the mystery of God's providence, he uses prayer as the means of accomplishing what he ordained in eternity. So we ought to pray. And also, let's think about the scope, the nature of the work. Once again, in 2 Corinthians, this is back in chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but just just listen to what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. This is what Paul says, Who is sufficient for these things? We bear in our words, our body, our whole demeanor as preachers of the gospel, we bear with us either a stench to those who hate God and hate his word, or we bear a sweet fragrance to those who are receiving this as the very words of life. And Paul says, who's sufficient for this? Now, Paul can say that. No one since Paul has had a better education, has been more spiritually gifted, has worked harder for the sake of the gospel. And Paul said, in and of himself, despite his pedigree, I'm not sufficient for the task. He goes on to say, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul said, who's sufficient for this? Then in 2 Corinthians 10. Now we're ahead of, of our text this morning. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You hear that? The weapons of our warfare, we're we're at war. But the weapons are not swords and spears and shields and bows. They're words. But words that come with divine power. Well, what enables that divine power? Prayer. Prayer. Saints, if we begin to grasp the weight of the task that's given to, by Christ to his church to serve as an embassy, to serve as a gospel outpost in behind enemy lines... And what needs to happen is that a supernatural work needs to take place to transform dead, cold, evil, wicked hearts who are in enmity with God and to transform them into friends of God. That doesn't happen by the eloquence of speech. That doesn't happen by careful study. That doesn't happen by by mere arguments. It's divine power. That needs prayer. It needs fervent prayer, frequent prayer, constant prayer. The gospel ministry stands as one of the most challenging and dangerous vocations a man could ever enter into. That's that's a fact. And if the power of God is not at work in him and in his preaching and in his ministry, he will never survive it. Do, 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 do Do we grasp the supernatural power that's necessary, not only standing behind this desk, proclaiming in a sermon, but meeting with someone in their living room, sitting with somebody at a coffee shop and opening the scriptures to them because they are in sin and they need to turn from it. Do you know that's not done by the persuasive arguments of men? Change doesn't happen by the force of someone's will, not mine, not the other person's. You know in your own heart, if you've walked with Christ very long, you need the power of the spirit work within you to mortify sin, to change your desires, to reshape your affections. That needs the constant prayer of God's people for things that maybe you don't even know about what's going on. You don't know whose marriage is in crisis and whose children are wayward and and who's, who's having trouble with what, but you know that you're commanded to pray for those things. Will you be faithful in those duties? The scope and the nature of the work of ministry demands, it requires the power of God on the wings of the prayers of his people. But at the very same time, this this gospel ministry is the most challenging and dangerous vocation a man can enter into, and at the same time, it's also the very best job on the planet. Charles Spurgeon said, I've been called to preach the gospel. Why would I stoop to be a king? There's no job on the planet. That I, would, that I would rather have. And young men, I commend this to you. Paul says, he who desires the office of an overseer aspires to a noble work, a noble task. Young men, as you're making your plans for the future, as you're considering your, a future vocation, you're evaluating yourself along with your parents' help prayerfully before the Lord, will you give some thought to whether the Lord had, was calling you, was calling you to the gospel ministry? That perhaps the Lord would call you to give your life to declaring this great gospel. So saints, will you pray? This is your first and chief duty to any pastor you sit under, whether here or in another place. Will you pray for his faithfulness in both life and doctrine? We we see in the pastoral epistles the qualification for a man. and In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, guard your life and doctrine. Will you pray that your pastors do that? that God would give them fruitfulness in those areas? Will you pray for divine power, not only in preaching, but as he speaks with others in private counsel? Don't, don't walk away thinking. You know, when we, we tweaked our order of worship a couple of months ago, and we added a, a specific prayer before the sermon where one of our, our deacons comes and, and prays for the preaching of God's word, and, and we ought to do that. I think it's a good thing. But let's don't walk away thinking we've done all of our duty when we've done that. There's much more uh, that needs the prayers of God's people with respect to to the power needed for the work of the ministry. Pray for wisdom. Pray for perseverance for your pastors. Pray for protection, as Paul said, from wicked and evil men. Pray that his ministry would increasingly be marked by godly attributes. Pray that God would bear the fruit of patience, of humility, of gentleness, of, of self-control, of kindness, and also boldness and, and clarity and authority. Pray that God would raise up other men to teach and preach this gospel. You know, this is pressed upon me uh, got providentially in our General Assembly just last week, and seeing this this old church building where the forest creek and all that kind of, of of stuff that I like, and the sound of the old pews creaking, and but far more than that, there have been generations to come and go. And and Paul says in Second Timothy two, he's commanding Timothy, he says, "What you've heard." From me, in the presence of many witnesses, teach to other men, other faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations in that one little tiny verse. Are we praying not only for me, for today's pastor, but for tomorrow's, for the next generation? Are we praying that God would do what he's commanded his people to do, that God would would empower what he's commanded his people to do and raise up the next generation? to raise up laborers to come alongside me in the work. We ought to pray accordingly that one day perhaps the Lord would be pleased after everyone in this room is in the dust that people will be able to see the ongoing witness of GFBC Conroe. I dream of having a cemetery next to the building, by the way. I'd love that we need to pray. That's the first mandate. That's the first duty. And, and it's the most important one. The second one, the second one is follow. To the degree that a pastor's teaching and life is worthy of imitation, make it your aim to follow it. John Owen in his little booklet puts it this way. He, this is the duty as he spells it out. The pastor's way of life is to be observed and carefully followed to the extent that he walks in the ways of Jesus Christ. This is in his little book, Duties of Christian Fellowship, which I I commend to you. And again, the scriptures are, are abundantly clear in these areas. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul puts the command upon Timothy. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Well, necessarily, if this duty is placed upon Timothy, then the duty of the congregation is what? Observe and follow that example. But Paul makes it much more explicit in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul's not saying, look to me exclusively. That's never his claim. He's saying, look to me and others like me who are following after Christ, who are following his word he goes on, for many, Paul says, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mind set on earthly things. Do you hear the urgency in Paul's writing? Not only pray for me, but, but imitate me, because the other way is to imitate those who sound like they know what they're talking about. But their God is their belly, they are are obsessed with their own interests, their own desires, and their end is destruction. Follow those who are truly on the road to Zion. Now, the writer of the Hebrews, I think, puts an even finer point on this matter of following or imitation. And I think this is really quite helpful. In Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7, the apostle says, remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. You notice again how there's a connection between faithful living and teaching and a contrast to those who would walk in an opposite way. And so here, the command is consider, give your attention to, contemplate, meditate upon the outcome of the way of life of those who've taught you and instructed you in the Word of God. Imitate their faith. Now, I think we have to recognize this is has particular attention to those very things that the Scriptures give to us as qualifications for overseers, for bishops, pastors, elders, those areas in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. What are those things that are observable in a man's life that are praiseworthy, particularly with respect to how he manages his home, how he loves his wife, how he disciplines his speech, how he governs his home, how he interacts with gentleness and meekness with the people around him? It's a call to observe a way of life and a way of faith and see for yourself, consider if there's things worthy of imitation. When you look at your pastor, do you see in his life certain priorities? Certain commitments that are worthy of imitation? Do you see, again, both his life and his doctrine? His life, including his his family, do you see there certain duties, certain sacrifices, certain patterns that you're able to observe and say, this is Christ-like and worthy of imitation? This is not at all a call to imitate a certain personality or a style or, or imitating outward things. You know, it's, it's often, it's kind of a running joke in, in seminaries uh, with young pastors, young preachers, they tend to sound like the guys they listen to the most. So you can listen to a young seminarian who might sound like John Piper or Steve Lawson or Vodie Bauckham or something like that. We naturally imitate. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying imitate mannerisms or style or or those outward things. He says it's not a call to imitate the weaknesses of a man or the imperfections of a man. It's it's not a call to blind obedience or, or a subjection to a man's personal opinions. It's not any of those things at all, but it is a command to think sincerely and charitably about the doctrine that a man holds and teaches and his commitment to those things. It is, it is a call to consider the, man, the outcome of a man's life. Is his life bearing fruit? And, and then ask yourself, if, if, there's, if there's certain fruit, what are the commitments what are the priorities, what are the sacrifices that are worthy of imitation to get to that fruit? Several years ago, I came across a, a church membership covenant that was written in 1790. It was drawn up by the Baptist Church. So here's, I don't know how you fit, you couldn't fit this on a, on a modern business card, I don't think. This is the Baptist Church in Horse Fair, Stony Stratford, Bucks, England. And I think this there's an excerpt I'm going to read for you, and I think this summarizes very well some of the duties that those that went before us recognized with respect to their duties to their pastors, and particularly this area of, of, of following. Listen to this. We covenant to esteem our pastor highly in love for his work's sake. This we will endeavor to manifest by frequently and fervently praying for him, diligently, diligently attending on his ministry encouraging his heart and strengthening his hands to the utmost of our power in the work of the Lord, freely consulting him as we have occasion and opportunity, respecting our spiritual affairs, treating him affectionately when present and speaking respectfully of him when absent. As he is a man of like passions with others, we will endeavor to conceal and cover with the mantle of love his weaknesses and imperfections also to communicate or share unto him of our temporal good things, knowing that the Lord hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Also we engage that according to our ability, we will contribute our share towards defraying all necessary expenses attending the worship of God. We likewise promise to keep the secrets of the church and not to expose its concerns to the world around. Do You hear that sense of, of duty, not only to one another, but to their pastors as well. And I think this is an appropriate place to remind those of you who are in Christ that your first and chief and primary duty is to follow Christ himself. Paul says in another place, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So the imitation, once again, is not a blind obedience. As the word of God is revealed to you by the grace and power of his Holy Spirit, You are urged to follow after Christ, to follow his law, to obey his commands. You are not blindly to follow me or any man. Your conscience has been purchased and freed from the doctrines and commandments of men. You are to submit yourself to the word of Christ only. So you have every right, in fact you have the obligation to reject a command that I could give to you that's contrary to the word of God or not contained in it. But to the degree that a, that a flawed but faithful pastor teaches you the word of Christ and calls you to follow your heavenly husband, then you need to consider the outcome of such a life. And and I backed up when I was reading 2 Corinthians 6 earlier. I was careful to back up a little bit in a chapter end of chapter 5 because that's That's Paul's argument. He's recognizing that he's been given a command as an apostle, as a pastor, to speak on behalf of Christ and declare to every man to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's basically, that's my argument. The whole whole thing to which I've been committed, the whole charge which I've been given, is to preach the gospel and say, be reconciled to God and follow this king. Renounce your allegiance to the kingdom of this world and follow after the king who has redeemed you and saved you. God has made pastors holy ambassadors and their official appeal to every man, woman, and child is to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing to ask of you then is, have you obeyed that call? Not because your pastor has said so. But because Christ has said so, the king has said, you were at enmity with me from before you were born. But I've offered myself for you. I took on your flesh. I willingly submitted myself to death on your behalf. Have you, have you done that? Have you believed that? Have you been washed and cleansed and pardoned from your sin? Have you believed that, that Christ died on the cross, not just generally, but for your sin? according to the scriptures. Have you believed that God has raised him from the grave as an acceptable sacrifice for your sin? Not just your indiscretions and your mistakes, and but for your sin, your enmity with God. Have you believed that that, that, that atoning sacrifice was both necessary and satisfactory to atone for your sin? Do you believe that the wickedness of your sin actually made the death of Christ necessary? Do you believe that? Do you believe the grace and merit of Christ alone can make you stand righteous before God? I mean, this is the gospel that one man gave gave himself as a ransom for many. And so if you're in Christ, then his spirit will produce and grow in you a love for his bride that increases, that grows It's a work of divine grace in you by which you persevere in praying for your church and for your pastors. It's a work of divine grace that you you persevere in following after and able to discern a good example worthy of following. It is evidence of supernatural power within you that you have a desire to do such things. And it is a grace of the gospel that you will want to give yourself Give of yourself and of your possessions and of your time and of your gifts in order to support that work. So we come then to the third point pray, follow, and lastly, support. Support. Support the work of the ministry in both tangible and intangible ways. The scriptures are abundantly clear that a pastor ought to have his material needs met by the church that he serves up to the ability of that church and that a church's support to her pastor is not limited to material needs. Listen to several passages. I'm just going to read them in order. In Galatians chapter six, beginning in verse six, Paul says, let the one who is taught the word Share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will also reap. Paul appeals to a universal law, we could say, of sowing and reaping. This is the one who's taught the word, has a duty, has an obligation to share with those who do the teaching. Then in 1 Timothy 5, in verse 17, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Then a couple verses later, he says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then Paul asks this rhetorical question. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? I mean, here's the law. It's in Deuteronomy. It's, it's explicit. Do not muzzle an ox. Here's a dumb animal. It's treading out the corn. Don't muzzle it. Allow it to eat the fruit of its own labors. And Paul says, is it for oxen, really, that God's concern? Does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commandeth that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. See what Paul does? He appeals to the law of nature first. Even the farmer recognizes this. and You don't have to be a Christian to understand that. That the laborer gets to participate in the fruit of his own labor. And then he also appeals to the explicit command of the scriptures. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I want to summarize this this duty using the words in our confession of faith. This is in chapter 26 on on the church, and paragraph 10 articulates this, this biblical position. The work of pastors being constantly attend the service of Christ in his churches In the ministry of the word and prayer, with watching for their souls as they that must give an account to him, it is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate or share to them of all their good things according to their ability, so as they may have a comfortable supply without being themselves entangled in secular affairs and may also be capable of exercising hospitality toward others. And this is required by the law of nature and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now, perhaps in our context, in the United States of America, particularly in 2023, those words don't seem all that controversial to us. We may dispute certain points or another, but the fact that a local church is responsible to pay her own pastor is not foreign to us. But I'd submit to you the very first time that such a statement was written down and published publicly in the 17th century, it was not the case. This was as, as if Luke were writing um, another book of Acts about the Acts of the particular Baptists in the 17th century, Luke might say something like, there was no small disturbance when the Baptists introduced this doctrine. Now, you know who was responsible for paying ministers before the Baptists recovered this biblical doctrine? The civil authorities. It came from the state. People paid taxes, and the king paid the salary of the pastors. Well, as a friend of mine says, with shekels come shackles. And you don't want the king paying your minister. Because if the king pays your minister, he gets to to decide what the minister says and doesn't say. So the the Baptists were actually accused, and I I don't have time to to go into all of the history, but I would commend to you, there's a great section in um, Dr. Jim Renahan's Baptist Symbolics Volume 1, which deals with the First London Confession. Where they first introduced this doctrine to, again, no small disturbance among Anglicans in particular, which was the state church, and even Presbyterians. And the Baptists actually uh, asked one of their own to write a book, a booklet, that was published among all the churches called The Gospel Ministers Maintenance Vindicated. And what they simply did was they read their Bibles. And and they read and decided that if it is Christ who calls a man to the ministry through the instrument of a local church, then it is the instrument of the local church by the power of Christ that provides for him. It's not the civil magistrate that put a man in the ministry. It's Christ and his church that's done that. Therefore, it is Christ and his church that are responsible to provide for his material needs. And they understood the principle from 1 Timothy 5. And Paul's speaking about widows there, but there's a principle. And he says that those who will not work, he doesn't say cannot, he says those who will not work and provide for their own families have denied the faith and are worse than infidels. And they apply the same kind of principle. And they say that a church that has the means but will not do it, will not provide for their pastor, is a shameful thing. It's a shameful thing to to, to rely upon the civil government or to say, well, we have the funds, but we want the civil authorities to pay for that instead. And they looked at that and said, according to the scriptures, that ought to be a a, a mark of shame upon such a church that would rely upon civil authorities or others to supply those needs. In fact, Paul understood it in the same way. Again, in 2 Corinthians still, in chapter 11, Paul uses this language, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them in order to minister to you. See, the the poorer churches in Macedonia, Philippi and others, sent an offering and gave Paul, Paul was working with his own hands in Corinth, making tents, here's this larger church who had the means and wouldn't support him. Paul said, I robbed others. And and the language of robbery is intentional. Paul said, it it wasn't their duty, it was yours. And you didn't embrace that duty, but they did. And so I robbed them in order to minister to you. And so this principle, then, is, is not only applied to material things. The language of our, our confession is to provide a comfortable supply. Now, that's a relative term, isn't it? Comfortable to whom? Comfortable in what circumstance? Well, relative to the congregation as a whole, and also according to their ability. You know, We had uh, some uh, uh, extensive discussion on the floor of our General Assembly about this very idea with respect to church plants. To, to To bring a man in and have him move his family, maybe across the country to help serve as a church planter what what level of support is is right and sufficient uh, to provide for him and and that there could be legitimate disagreement on on those things but there but it's not right not to even consider it or just to assume well he just comes and works at his own expense um, that's that's not the pattern that we see. In the scriptures. But it's not limited here to material things or financial things only. For example, if a husband were to, in a sense, pride himself that my wife and children suffer from no material want whatsoever, I have freely provided for them all that they need. They have a roof over their head, they have nice clothes, they have All all the modern amenities, that they lack for nothing materially. Has he done all of his duty? Well, hopefully you would all shake your heads. Well, no, he hasn't. I mean, if if his wife says, but I feel no warmth, no love, no care from you, then is he generally providing for his wife? If his children can say, I don't even know my father. He doesn't spend time with us. Is he really providing for them in, in a holistic sense? And so we can apply the same kinds of principle and say that this this support that is incumbent upon a local church to her pastor is not limited to tangible, material provision. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. The support also has to be both visible and invisible, tangible and intangible, material and immaterial. Now, remember, I quoted the beginning, the, the Barna study regarding why pastors are leaving the ministry. And and some, again, the top reasons given were the immense stress of the job, feeling lonely, uh, isolated, troubled by the effect of, of the ministry on his wife, on his children, conflict within the church, feeling disrespected by church members, lacking the tools to do the job well. All these are some of the reasons given, not comprehensively, but you know, and the polling data never tells the whole story. But are there ways in which church members can consider these kinds of things and recognize that it is not only material support that's required of us to our pastors, but other kinds of support as well? And you know, in your own life, you know, in your marriages, you know, in your homes, you know, in other relationships. That support comes in a lot of different ways, doesn't it? And you understand that. So, just as a soldier does not serve at his own expense, but he, he doesn't supply himself either. He doesn't provide his own uniform, his own weapons, his own armament. The church members are able to support their pastor in other ways. Are there ways that, that a church can say, we ought to relieve some of these burdens? We ought to lessen some of these strains? We ought to pray to that end. Does the pastor have the necessary resources that he needs in order to do his job well? Does he have the tools? Does he have the, the tangible tools like books and study helps and a computer and and software and whatever he needs in order? You know, does a chef have the 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 dishes and the pots and pans and the food that he needs in order to prepare a good meal? Any chef would know if you walk into an empty kitchen. You know, we stayed at a, at a couple of Airbnbs and that's always an adventure. You go in to cook something as well. There's There's not a pot here. Uh, There's there's nothing to cook with. We don't have the right spatula. We don't have the right instruments. Does he have the available time that is needed? Or is his time constrained unnecessarily by administrative tasks? About 17 years ago, I sat down with a former pastor and confronted him uh, regarding plagiarism. Blatantly plagiarizing sermons, downloading them from the internet and reading them word for word. And I sat down and and confronted him. And you know, one of the reasons that he gave for excusing that is he said, you know, if I did what you're telling me that I should be doing and studying the scriptures for myself and basically cooking my own meal, I wouldn't have time to do all these other things that that I'm doing. And I said, well, brother, other things you can outsource. You could hire an outside company Hire a consultant. Volunteers can do certain things. But only the pastor. Only those that God has called and gifted and equipped for this work can do the very thing you're neglecting to do. Are there ways, and we saw this in in Acts chapter 6, didn't we? With the calling of the first deacons. The church in Jerusalem had been growing and growing and growing. And the apostles had been providing for not only the ministry of the word and prayer, but also serving the also very important work of ministering to the widows. But it got to the point where there was a threat of disunity within the body because they simply could not get to it all. And they wisely brought the church together and said, it's not right that we should give up the ministry of the word and prayer to which Christ has called us exclusively and in order that we can serve tables, which is very important, but not our primary calling. So now what needs to happen is that the church needs to appoint seven men full of wisdom and of the Spirit and of good reputation to meet those needs so that we can then give ourselves once again in full to the ministry of the Word and prayer. This is precisely the the language and the reason for the, the language in our confession of faith that churches is, is incumbent to give a comfortable supply to their pastors without themselves being entangled in secular affairs. And I, I understand that to mean not only a, a secular job outside of the church by which he's providing for his family but even in the oversight of the church. There there are affairs that a pastor doesn't need to do if someone else could do. Other ways of a church supporting And providing for a pastor, does he have the necessary time off and rest? Does he have an opportunity to be refreshed, to be recharged? Uh, One of the chief um, discoveries in Barna's polling data is that the rates of burnout are higher than they've ever been historically in pastoral ministry. Uh, Part of that is because the ministry models in today are asking a pastor to, to be a CEO and a visionary and a planner and all these other things in addition to preaching the Word, or maybe instead of that. And that's that's a necessary stress. But does a pastor have the necessary time off? Does he have the time with his family? Does, Does the congregation recognize the necessity of that and the need of that? In many cases, some of the excessive burdens upon pastors could be alleviated if the church took the time, the energy, the diligence... To study those duties, uh, their duties to their pastors from the scriptures, and they, they sought prayerfully the power, the grace of God in Jesus Christ to obey those duties, uh, out of faith that God will actually use those means of sustaining this church body into future generations. And, I, and, and I, as I'm studying this, it came to my mind in Proverbs chapter three and verse twenty-seven. The Proverbs say this, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it. When you have it with you, do not devise evil against your neighbor for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. As I read that this week, I thought, you know, in, in some of the church conflicts that I've, I've observed, sometimes from a faraway distance in other churches, sometimes I've, I've, I've seen them more up close, if, if a church was faithful in both material and immaterial ways, simply to obey this. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due? One of the good things that is pressed upon you by way of duty is to pray. Do you withhold that? To, to follow an example, do you, do you withhold that? Uh, to support, do, do, you, do you withhold that when it is in the power of your hand to do so? Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow and I'll give it. I knew of another church that had um, an inheritance given to them. as a large sum. A- and yet, frequently, their pastors were going without. Um, they were not adequately compensated and paid. And yet, here's this money set aside for something. They had the power within their hand to do so. But essentially, they were saying to their neighbor, their pastor, go and come back maybe tomorrow. We'll do something. Do not, In terms of immaterial ways, do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. You know isn't that true of all of us in the in the body of Christ? part of the reason we come together is for safety's sake we we come together to encourage and exhort and and strengthen one another by the power of Christ, and yet we end up striving with one another without cause, can't we being hyperly critical um, you you know uh, those of you who've been here a while you you are already aware of many of my weaknesses, my insufficiencies. Those of you who have not been around as as long, just just wait, you'll figure it out. I promise you. If not, you can talk to Gina, she can help you. But are you you willing to bear with those things? Help correct me, help me to grow. Pray for those things. Uh, Pray for those those weaknesses that remain in my teaching, where where there's a lack of, of clarity. Will you pray for that? Will you help me in those areas? If there are things that I'm that I'm teaching that you don't understand, this doesn't make sense, you're not able to follow, tell me. I would want to know that. Are there offenses, personal offenses, things that I've said or done, uh, maybe not even aware that I've said or done it? Uh, don't let that stick like a pebble in your shoe and cause an irritation. Will you, will you love me enough to tell me uh, where I have disappointed you, where I have hurt you? Paul says there in... 2 Corinthians 6. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, open wide to us also. Beloved, will you commit yourself to obeying the commands of Scripture? Not because I've said them to you, but because this is the word of Christ. Will you pray for the ministry of this local church and, and any other church? now or in the future, that you happen to be a part of? Will, will you follow after and consider the outcome of a man's life and faith and consider what are those things that are worthy of imitation and, and can we exhort and encourage one another in those areas? Will you commit to your own support? Again, both in material ways but also immaterial ways. Now, you, you know from your own experience how much um, immaterial things can be a great encouragement to you at times when God seasonably brings uh, a word of exhortation or encouragement to you. Uh, don't, don't think that this is only material things. Pray, follow, support. Well, that's, that's enough. I will close, close there. May the Lord give us wisdom. May the Lord give us discernment together as the body of Christ for his glory. And may he be pleased that long after we're dead and gone, that this place will be full and prospering and partly due, all due to God's grace, and as a second cause, due to the faithfulness of God's people to support the work. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we are so thankful. You've granted us life and breath and being, and far more than that, that you've given to us new life. in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, for that we would submit ourselves to him as our prophet, priest, and king. Even as we sang just immediately before the sermon that we would give ourselves to recognizing his, his authority over us as our prophet, declaring to us that which is needful, that which is true, his office of king, commanding and ruling and subduing and governing us, and his office as priest, having made once for all a full, acceptable sacrifice on our behalf, giving up himself for us. Lord, as we shift our attention now to the word of God, not spoken, but visible in the table, Will you grant to us the grace to believe these very precious promises that you've set before us today? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.